Well, again, at, at the expense of being overly redundant, this is Reformation Sunday. And why do we call it Reformation Sunday? Is because on October the 31st in the year 1517 was when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses or doctrinal statements to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And that basically launched officially what we refer to as uh, the Reformation. So in uh, referring to this as Reformation Sunday, we usually like to put a special emphasis uh, upon the significance of this time of year uh, at the end of October when we can celebrate the work of God through the Holy Spirit in, uh, in bringing about this incredible Reformation that we are still the children of even today. The point I want to emphasize this morning is that without the Reformation, the modern missions movement would never have been born. Now, when we say the modern missions movement, we're primarily talking about foreign missions. But that great movement that started after the Reformation had its foundation laid during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, missionary activity took place during the Middle Ages before Martin Luther uh, by the Roman Church. But oftentimes their evangelism frequently involved forcible conversions like those of the Saxons by Charlemagne in the ninth century, the Crusades when they invaded to try to retake over Jerusalem, around the, the, the uh, 10th, 11th centuries. And then the, uh, the persecution of the Albigensians and the Waldensians in the 13th century, their missionary endeavors were, were really more like imperial conquests. It was convert or die. So the whole mission movement was oftentimes infected with this attempt to force people to become Christians, or they would lose their liberty or lose their life. The Reformation, in contrast, laid the foundation for the modern missionary movement in five ways. Now, if you're familiar with the Reformation, you know the number five is very special. We have the five solas. We have the five points of Calvinism. So in my message, we're going to have five points. I don't know. I just thought I'd try to make it a little bit reformed. So the first point we're going to look at that we see from the Protestant Reformation that brought about and laid the foundation for the modern missionary movement today, preaching the gospel throughout the world, is that in the Protestant Reformation, they recovered the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we think of the Reformation, we normally think of this. We think of the, the recovery of the biblical gospel from the errors that had clung to it like leeches during the, the time of the Middle Ages. Over the previous centuries, the gospel had been infected. And without the gospel, the true gospel, missions is meaningless. You can span the globe and preach the gospel, but if your gospel is bad and defective, all you're going to produce is false converts. And that's mainly what was going on during the Middle Ages. 
But then by the grace of God, Martin Luther was studying Romans and he ran across Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and it stunned him. The Spirit of God opened his eyes to an incredible biblical truth. And in Romans 1, 17, it says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And Martin Luther began to study this verse in the context of Romans, and the light began to shine within his, his darkened soul that God would provide righteousness to the sinner by faith and by faith alone. In Romans 3.28, he read, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of God. That to be just before God is not a matter of me earning my own merit, my own righteousness through the sacraments of the church. I can be righteous before God by faith as God gives me Christ's own righteousness as a gift. So the doctrine of justification was rediscovered and it began to transform the life and worship of the church. The doctrine of justification is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. The, re the reformers agreed on that. The doctrine of justification means that God declares the sinner to be righteous by faith alone. That that righteousness is a gift of God. It's not their own righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. The righteousness of someone else, Jesus Christ, the only righteous man, imputed to our account through faith alone. And what was so revolutionary about that is that prior to the Reformation, the gospel had been choked by the stranglehold of the sacramental system of doing church, a seemingly endless demand of works for personal merit to earn salvation, including the beliefs in indulgences and purgatory, which filled people with fear and enslaved them in a system of merits to try to earn their salvation. That was basically the gospel being preached before the Protestant Reformation in most of Europe. And so the Lord used the, uh, the truth of Scripture to open Martin Luther and other reformers' minds to this glorious gospel that we are saved through faith alone. With that, by the way, which is they refer to as sola fide, faith alone, we have the other four solas of the Protestant Reformation, Scripture alone, grace alone. It's not by our merit. It's not through the church. It's through Christ alone. Only Christ can save. And all of that is for the glory of God alone. So this became the centerpiece of their preaching as they understood the gospel, they began to preach it and proclaim it, and a great revival began to take place. So the first thing that modern missions needed was a recovery of the biblical gospel, and that came through the Protestant Reformation. So that's the first thing we can... 
thank God for today and continue in the spirit of the Reformation to proclaim this gospel as well. The second thing that the Protestant reformers did, which kind of laid the foundation for the modern missionary movement, is that there was a revival of theology and missions together. If you look, for example, at the Great Commission, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And what Jesus is emphasizing here is that the Great Commission means going making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, but also teaching them. And not just teaching them the elementary truths of of the Christian life, but teaching them all that I commanded you. In other words, making a disciple is not just getting somebody saved and then moving on to the next person. Making a disciple is training someone to be a learner so they are studying all that Christ taught. Not just certain little basic elementary truths, but everything. So that the, the, the Great Commission really involves a robust theological education. And the Reformers began to see that. It's far more than just preaching the gospel. It's teaching people how to live the gospel and understand all that Jesus taught us. See, that's the vision of the Great Commission. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who's growing and learning all that I commanded you. And I'm, I'm very thankful to God that in our Bible Institute, in our Sunday school classes, we're, we're making an attempt to, to cover all the things that, that Jesus has commanded us. It's far more making a disciple. It's far more than just them learning the basic Christian gospel. It's far deeper than that. So the, the Reformers began to see the importance of theology the importance of a, of a full understanding of the teachings of the Word of God, <clears throat> not just elementary basic doctrines. And that leads to the gospel-centered theology, which gave rise to an explosion of outreach. Because, see, when, when we know the truth, it creates a desire to spread the truth. And that was true with the Reformers, and it should be true of us today as their children. To know the truth should give us a desire to spread the truth. John Calvin would go on to say that a good missionary is a good theologian, and a good theologian is a good missionary. In other words, the two should go together. That missions involves carrying all that Christ taught to the peoples. So it involves a rich theological understanding of doctrine, of truth, as well as a burning heart desire to spread that to people who don't know it. So this is laying the foundation for the modern missionary movement. The Reformation obviously was 
not as involved in foreign missions as some people criticize the reformers, but they were more involved in local missions because they were not so much focused on cross-cultural foreign missions, but reaching the unconverted churchgoers in in Europe. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but because of the, the ravaging effects of the Roman Catholic gospel, the Reformers are primarily focused on spreading the church, growing the church by recovering the gospel. So the foreign missions emphasis came later, <clears throat> although there was some aspect of it even among the Reformers. But it was necessary to revive the church first because the church would send out missionaries to foreign lands and their focus was primarily on the churches throughout England. Well, throughout Europe. The, the gospel had been left in shambles. The word of God had been buried. And so the reformers understood that they needed to reach out with the gospel. But again, it started with the church. But notice what John Calvin said in one of his sermons. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. He said, God wants His grace to be known to all the world. And He had commanded that this gospel be preached to all creatures. We must, as much as we are able, seek the salvation of those who today are strangers to the faith, who seem to be completely deprived of God's goodness. And so you clearly see His desire to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but again, their primary ministry was to bring the gospel back to the church because that's where you've got to start. Uh, Martin Luther used the analogy of dropping a pebble in the water and it starts making these, these rings that would just expand farther out and out. Thank you, brother. And as the rings began to spread out, that's, that's the way the gospel should work. That it should start out creating a ring right where you drop it in your own Jerusalem and that part of your, your world, but then it begins to spread out and it's growing and increasing. That's their vision of the gospel and of missions. Though most of their attention was focused on reviving the church in the different areas. So this is a, an important aspect of modern missions. Theology, knowing the truth, and having a, a desire to spread the truth. And that's what the reformers uh, recovered. That's what they began to, uh, to have in their hearts. And that's foundational to the modern missionary movement. The third point is their focus on the translation of the Scriptures. And this is even seen in other versions of the Great Commission. Notice in uh, Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after His resurrection, is giving the uh, Great Commission to His disciples. And He says, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So if you're going to proclaim the gospel to all the nations, you're going to have to get the gospel in the language of all the nations. So this whole emphasis on translating the Bible 
that the reformers sought to do laid the foundation for the modern missionary movement. Without that, you would have no no uh, modern missions. So the work of translation is really essential for missions. If you're going to reach the unreached, the Bible has to be communicated in their native tongue. And without this, they can't read it, they can't hear it, they can't see the light of the glory of Christ if they can't understand the message. Now, it's interesting that God gave two spiritual gifts that foreshadow the importance of the ministry of translation. You know what they are? Two spiritual gifts that show the heart of God for His people to take the gospel throughout the world and translate it in other languages. Number one was a gift of tongues, right? Because they started speaking in other human languages that person did not study or know, but it was a miracle of God's grace. It'd be like for us to start speaking in, in Chinese or German or something, a language that I, I haven't studied And that's the gift of tongues. And why was that? So people in other languages could hear the revelation of God. And not only that gift, but another gift, and that's the interpretation of tongues. Because that was given within the local church. So if someone stood up back then, who actually, in the first century, who actually had the gift of tongues, and they started speaking a revelation from God in a language that nobody else in the church knew, then the gift of interpretation would translate it so the people could hear, learn, and be edified. And all of this just shows it in the first century, and I think those gifts gradually expired, uh, but, but it, it just showed the heart of God to get the gospel in other languages so people could understand and better worship God. So the, the work of translation is a, is a phenomenally important ministry even today for not only preaching the gospel, but doing training. And uh, thank God for Doug's ministry in this area. But that translation work is vital for foreign missions. And that was, that was laid even among the Protestant reformers. So some of the great men of God that were had a heart to translate the Scriptures into their native tongue. These are four examples. Uh, John Wycliffe. And let me say to all the kids that are here this morning, remember this name, because you're going to learn a whole lot more about John Wycliffe in your own Reformation study that will be after the chili meal. So remember John Wycliffe. He's often referred to as a morning star of the Reformation. He was a pre-reformer, but he so believed in sola scriptura that if the Word of God is all authoritative for us in our life, then people need to be able to hear that and know it in their own language. The Scriptures provide an infallible guide for the Christian life, so every Christian, not just the clergy, but every child of God needs to know the Scriptures. And so John Wycliffe, who believed that since Christ and the apostles taught the people in, their, in the language they understood, so we need to do the same thing. 
had had it placed within his heart by the Spirit to translate the Bible into English so that English people could now read the Bible and learn the Bible. And that was very much on his heart. The, the Roman Catholic Church, again, hated this. And they hated those who wanted to translate the Bible into the common language of the people. I guess they wanted to keep it in Latin. They wanted to keep it to themselves so that the people had to rely upon their interpretation in order to to uh, live their Christian life. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury said this about John Wycliffe. He said that pestilent and most wretched John Wycliffe of damnable memory, a child of the old devil, crowned his wickedness by translating the scriptures into English. So they didn't want it to happen. But if you want to minister to people and bring the gospel to them, bring the word of God to them, you've got to bring the scriptures into their language. And uh, John Wycliffe was one of the first to do that and was a, a shining example for many to follow. So after he died, kids, something happened to his body. And I want you to, to keep that question mind. What happened to his body? And you'll learn the answer later on this afternoon. The next one was John Huss. John Huss was a Bohemian, uh, which is modern-day Czech Republic. And he believed that biblical preaching in the common vernacular or the common language of the people was a mark of a true church. If you led the service in a language that the people didn't understand, that was not a true church, according to John Huss. And so he was committed to translating the Scriptures into Bohemian. The Council of Constance wanted to silence him and stop his work, so they had him burned alive at the stake. But John Huss, it is reported, in his uh, dying words, said, you're going to burn a goose. And the connection here is Huss. The name Huss means goose. And he says, you're going to burn a goose, but in 100 years you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. Now he said that about the time that he was being put to death. And it's interesting, 102 years later, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, Germany. And many think he was almost given a pretty close to a prophecy here. Now, I don't know about Luther being a swan. He's more like a bull in a china closet. But uh, so I don't know how well that fits. But uh, John Huss saw that the translation of the Scriptures was vital. And again, this is going to lead to the modern missionary movement as well. We also have... Martin Luther, of course, who read Huss's sermons. He read Wycliffe. He began to see the importance of the Bible in the common language, so he translated it into German. William Tyndale was very skilled in Greek. He translated the Bible into English again. He worked. He continued the work of Wycliffe. He improved upon the work of Wycliffe, but he also brought the Word of God into the English language. An exasperated Catholic scholar commented 
that it would be better to be without God's law than the Pope's laws. He said it'd be better to be without God's law than the Pope's law. In other words, what the people need more than the Bible is they need to know what the Pope's laws are. That trumps even God's laws. And William Tyndale is famous for his response when he said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life before many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scripture than you do. So his heart was to get the Word of God in the language of the people so that they could read the Gospel, understand it, and grow to know the Lord. So the Reformation emphasized how essential it is for the individual to hear and understand the gospel and the word of God. And that promoted again the work of translation, which is still going on today and is a very vital, necessary work in the Great Commission. The fourth uh, thing that the Protestant reformers did that laid the foundation for modern-day foreign missions is just the gospel expansion that took place even during their day. Some of that was due to persecution. And we read in Acts chapter 8, that's what happened with the early church. Persecution scattered the people. And when they scattered, they took the gospel with them. For example, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed there in Jerusalem. In verse 4, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word of God. So during the uh, period of the Reformation, as they began to preach the gospel and people began to believe the word of God and began to believe in Jesus Christ alone as their savior, the Roman Catholic Church brought tremendous persecution against them that caused them to scatter, which again was a part of the expansion of the gospel. It's often said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And what they mean by that is when people go out in the boldness of the Spirit preaching the gospel and they're persecuted to death, it doesn't kill the gospel, it doesn't kill the church, it actually inflames the church. The persecution actually spreads the church. It gives more boldness to more people. Almost works in the opposite direction than what the persecutors hope for. So the persecution pushes the gospel into new regions. Now this, again, was uh, very much true of John Calvin's ministry. Calvin is a Frenchman, and yet when he came to understand the gospel and the Reformation truths, he had to flee France, and he ended up in Geneva, Switzerland. And in Geneva, Switzerland... John Calvin began to train men for the ministry. He began to send out more preachers. Those who were in France who embraced the Calvinistic theology of John Calvin and the Reformation were called Huguenots. And they eventually were so intensely persecuted by the Catholics in France that they basically all but exterminated them in in France. 
you can see some of the spread of of the Reformation by the map here. The yellow are the areas uh, held by the Roman Catholics. The blue, that's Martin Luther and Lutheranism that spread from upper Germany up, up north into Sweden and Norway. The red is Calvin's ministry. And this is only around 1600. It spread over to uh, Scotland. Who took the gospel to Scotland? John Knox. He said, give me Scotland or I die. He had such a heart to want to reach his people with the gospel. England and the green is, is Anglican, but it will convert to the red under the Puritans and those the, their preaching. And eventually that would be transported and transplanted over into America and other parts uh, of the world. But if you notice in the yellow... You see the little splotch marks that kind of look brown with lines in it? Those were areas that were Calvinistic, that the ministry of the gospel flourished, but eventually they were suppressed and exterminated by the counter-reformation of the Roman Catholic Church. But you can see that it's spreading out. In Geneva, through the preaching of John Calvin, he only preached five sermons a week. I don't see how he did it. But he drew men to himself. He trained men. He sent out 1,200 pastors to plant more than 2,000 churches in France, his native country, by the year 1562. Most of those were later exterminated and run out of the country. They were killed. St. Bartholomew's Day, massacre, other events like that. But, but so the gospel is going out. There's a gospel expansion throughout Europe. Calvin was even involved in sending some people to Brazil. This is one of the rare times when they actually try to go out into other, other areas of the globe. That was not a successful venture, but, but they had a heart for it, although they're primarily trying to reform the church in Europe. The Reformation started a domino effect that led to the modern missionary movement. Uh, many others who left homes and comforts to preach the gospel to other people groups did it simply out of the Great Commission or the love of Christ. The love of Christ constrains us. And out of their love for Jesus Christ, they would go out to preach the gospel uh, so that others could come to know the Lord Jesus. We finally move forward in history till we come to William Carey who uh, in 1761 is when he was born. He died in 1834. He was a Calvinistic Baptist missionary to India, and he is basically referred to as the father of the modern missionary movement because he was an Englishman, and he went all the way over to India. So this is he's normally referred to as the father of the modern mission, which we normally think in terms of foreign missions. But he was a man of God who, who uh, embraced Calvinism. And it's so interesting that because of the Calvinism was so strong in the, in the Reformers and even the, the generations following them, that people are amazed that it produced so, so much emphasis on missions. You know, what's a, what's a normal objection to Calvinism? 
Well, if you believe that God chose certain people to be saved before the foundation of the world, then why evangelize? Right? You hear that all the time. The Reformers had no problem with the doctrine of election and missions. They saw and they understood that missions was the very means that the sovereign God used to save His elect that He chose before the foundation of the world. Since we don't know who the elect are, we're to preach the gospel to everybody. And they believed that. They believed the commandment of Christ to go out and preach the gospel to all the nations. And they just responded in obedience. So there's no conflict between Calvinism, the doctrine of election, and evangelism and missions, on the other hand. So through persecution and through the preaching of the gospel and the training of men, we find that the foundation for the modern missionary movement is being laid by the reformers. The London Missionary Society that sent out William Carey in the 18th century was still very strongly Calvinistic. And the conviction that the doctrines of grace, or Calvinism, provided a common platform for the best missionary activity they as ascribed to very committedly. So again, there's, there's, no, there's no problem. The modern missionary movement was not launched by Arminian theology. It was launched by Calvinism. And we need to keep that light and that fervor alive today to continue to see the importance of missions and evangelism even in our own day. You know, there's still about 2 billion people that don't have access to the gospel. Is translation of the Bible still important? Absolutely. Is there a need for people to go out and preach the gospel in other lands? Absolutely. Still 2 billion that have no real access to the gospel at all. Now, many of us cannot reach the mission field on our feet, but we can reach it on our knees as we pray for God's blessing upon our missionaries. We can reach the mission field on our knees as we pray. We can reach the mission field with our hands as we give and support the work of missions. And all of this, this foundation is being laid by the Protestant Reformation. So important. The final point, since I've got to get in five points, is that the Reformation also produced a lot of cultural fruit. The gospel is not sterile. It multiplies itself, but it also produces cultural fruit wherever the gospel really takes hold. It's interesting that in the Great Commission, again, Jesus said to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. So as the gospel goes out, disciples are made. The disciples need to be taught everything that Jesus commanded. And part of what Jesus commanded us is to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And look at Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. See, this is a part of discipleship. Not just that we believe and get saved and that's, okay, that's done. 
No, now we need to live, and our life needs to be full of good works. That's what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus commands his disciples, let your light shine so that the world of men can see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. So part of the command to be a disciple is to be engaged in good works. To be the salt of the earth. The salt which inhibits corruption and rot within a society. You be the salt of the earth. You be the light of the world. You preach the gospel, and by your good works, you try to change things to be a blessing to other people. See, this is all a part of really the Great Commission. It's living out the gospel on a daily basis. Jesus emphasized that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. How do we do that? How do we love our neighbor? today and then paul in galatians 6 while we have opportunity let us do good to all people especially to those who are of the household of faith yeah do good to church people but do good to all people how do we do that how do we actually do good to all people well i think we can certainly see that there are many different ways where we can apply this in our own lives today. But part of that is just living under the Lordship of Christ where I try to bring in my life and in the, in the sphere where I have influence, everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That I want to live under the Lordship of Christ and I want to see Christ exalted and magnified in the area where I live. And whatever I can do, the good that I can do, to help glorify Christ and advance His godly values within our society, that's part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, Calvin and Luther said that this obviously still applies to the realm of government. Lutheranism kind of went a different direction. Uh, Lutheranism developed the, the state church concept in Northern Europe where the church and the state were kind of together, and the church had great control over the state. So they're kind of a church state. Calvin, on the other hand, saw more of a separation between government and church. Each had their own sphere of authority. Nevertheless, the kings were under God's moral law, just like everybody else. And the goal of civil government, according to John Calvin, was to protect the outward worship of God. Don't try to shut down churches because of a virus. Protect the outward worship of God to defend sound doctrine, to promote civil righteousness, peace, and tranquility. Calvin also taught a Republican form of government where leaders are accountable with checks and balances to the people. So how do we do good? How do we good, do good to our neighbor? How do we, we love our neighbor? Well, I think part of being a disciple is not only first and foremost sharing the gospel with those among whom we live, but also try to influence them and, our, and others to what is good in God's sight. 
So Christians want good for our neighbors, right? If I love my neighbor, I want good for my neighbor. And the good is defined not by the culture itself, but by God. I want what God says is good for people. So that involves, for example, an economic good. So if I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and I'm called to to be rich in good works so that other people can see it, then I want to promote what will be best for the financial stability and economy of the, of the area in which we live. Not to promote laws or principles that's going to undermine the economy, but will help the economy to flourish. That is being good for my neighbor. That is loving my neighbor. It's also in the area of medical good. I want medicine to do what is best for people. You know, it's interesting. The parable of our Lord even emphasized this. The good Samaritan. What did he do? He actually helped care for this person who needed medical attention. And if we're to do good for our neighbor, then we want the laws and the medicine to be good and righteous and to promote the welfare of people. How about education with children? And I know many of us homeschool, but you know, 80% of the kids go to public schools. And if I want to do good to my neighbor, if I want to love my neighbor, I need to be concerned about public education as well. And I don't want to see all the CRT stuff brought in, or I don't want to see all this gender confusion brought in, because when they violate God's moral law, that's going to be bad for my neighbor. That's not loving my neighbor. That's promoting what's going to do them harm. So as a disciple, not only do I want to bring the gospel to them, but I want to do good to the community in which I live as well, so that others can see that I love people. I want what's good for them, and they'll glorify our God in heaven. Moral values, ending abortion, protecting life, religious freedom, voting for good laws and good leaders, and we have an election coming up in about a week. Very, very important for us to be voting taking the Bible with us into the voting booth, taking the Constitution with us, preserving our religious liberties, which is, which is of utmost importance. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And even though as we preach the gospel, not everybody's going to believe, but if we do good within our society... If we promote what is good, even the unbeliever can receive common grace blessings from God when their life is being directed according to God's moral law and God's eternal standards and values. That's being good to our neighbor, trying to promote what is in their best interest. And I think even through government and and laws uh, are important. So my encouragement just in light of how the Protestant Reformation brought about the modern-day missions movement, that there's an overflow. When the gospel is spread and people come to faith, societies change. When, when, when the gospel takes root deep enough and enough people are changed, society changes for the better, for the good. So it's important for us to vote.
coming up soon. And by the way, we do have, for any who are interested, we do have some uh, various voting guides out in the foyer. If you're not sure about certain candidates or judges are going to be on on your uh, voting uh, ballot, you can you can look at those. Michael Horton uh, wrote a very interesting paragraph summing up the uh, cultural effects of the gospel and which ultimately sifts down through the Protestant Reformation. But the, and it, you may not be able to read it, but I'm going to read it because it's small print on the screen. But this is what he wrote. Many historians look back to the Reformation and wonder at its far-reaching influences and in transforming culture. The work ethic, public education, civic and economic betterment, a revival of music, the arts, and a sense of all life being related somehow to God and His glory. These effects cause historians to observe with a sense of irony how a theology of sin and grace, the sovereignty of God over the helplessness of human beings, and an emphasis on salvation by grace apart from works, could be the catalyst for such energetic moral transformation. The Reformers did not set out to launch a political or moral campaign, but they proved that when we put the gospel first and give voice to the word, the effects inevitably follow. So the Protestant Reformation was the foundation for the modern missionary movement the gospel goes out, the gospel is preached, people come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they respond to that gospel by wanting to do good to other people. And in doing good, it brings about a sanctifying influence within the culture in which they live. So Christians started hospitals, Christians started schools, Christians ended the slave trade in England because they wanted to do good to their fellow man. And so it's a, it's a phenomenal uh, fruit from the gospel that the Protestant Reformation brought about. So the Great Commission is about making disciples who are to be taught all that Christ commanded, not just some of it, not just the ABCs, but all of it. And that involves what they're supposed to believe, how they're supposed to live, the importance of sharing the gospel to the lost, and doing good to our neighbor, whether they're saved or lost. We're to seek to do good to other people. And when that happens by the blessing of the Spirit of God, then sanctifying influences can take place in the culture. So the Reformation was a foundation for modern missions. Again, which wherever it takes root, wherever the gospel takes root in a nation, it will not only bring about the salvation of sinners, which is our first calling, but the overflow, the fruit, as we do good to our neighbor, will bring about good changes even within our culture. I close with a question. Where is your place in all of this? What good works are you engaged in? What gospel ministries are you committed to? 
that this great mighty reformation, this work of the Spirit of God might continue on. Where are you invested? Or where can you be invested? Either in the work of the gospel, in preaching the gospel, or supporting missions for those who have not heard, or in doing good so that we might be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and by our good works, see God's common grace bring more blessings upon the people among which we live. May God guide us all to think about that question and to pray for God and the Spirit to lead us into how we can be a part of this great glorious work of the Great Commission making disciples of all the nations. May God help us in that. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we uh, thank You, Lord, for the Protestant Reformation, just this incredible explosion of the Spirit of God in power, opening the eyes of the blind to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in recovering the gospel, but uh, bringing a revival of interest and in, in knowing the great theology of the Word of God, to have a heart to want to translate the Bible into the languages of other people, to, to want to see the gospel spread and expand, and not only to see just the gospel spread, but to see the moral values of God spread as well as part of the gospel fruit in the lives and areas of those who bow the knee to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that work still needs to go on today. And we pray that you would revive your church, that you would reform your church, that this work might continue, that modern missions might continue, the gospel preaching might continue, theological training would continue to go on, that your name would be uplifted, that it would be glorified and that uh, we would worship you and have more people worship you and bring glory to your name. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.